This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by two One Heat Minute productions. The first, Increment Vice, 45 episodes, deep diving on Paul Thomas Anderson's 2014 masterpiece based off Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, called Increment Vice. Hosted by Travis Woods, produced by myself, Blake Howard, and narrated by the awesome Cat Corbett, takes... And a myriad of unbelievable guests through this sort of stoner noir masterpiece. Megan Abbott, Jordan Harper, Drew McWeeny, Matt Zoller-Zeitz, Walter Chaw, Karina Longworth, Ryan Johnson. Get listening. And if you're into fiction, it came from the deep. Maria Lewis, the host of our Josie and the Podcasts podcast, is here with her very own audiobook, It Came From The Deep, and an after show, co-hosted by myself. That's in its own feed. It Came From The Deep, Increment Vice, search them wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's get to it. They sent me the script, uh, and I turned it down uh, because I I thought to myself, I said to Carol, my second wife, she'd gone to school with Redford out here. So I, I turned the, the script down because I, there, there's nothing there. You don't see the guy, there's nothing there. I'm not going to do it. And Bob Redford came to our house and said, Hal, you gotta do this role. I said, nobody really even see you. He says, Hal, you're wrong. Believe me, you're wrong. I said, the guy is in the dark all the time. He said, listen, Hal, people will, believe, will remember this role more than anything else in the film. Are you kidding, Redford? I'm telling you the truth. They will remember this role more than any Ray. Oh, hell, all right. Okay, I'll do it. Well, he was right. <laughs> he was right as rain. <laughs> he, 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 he understood it. And I didn't, but uh, I was very happy to, very happy to be part of that. It was a very important film. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Minute 129. Holy shit, of all the President's Minutes, I'm your host, Blake Howard. Uh, joining me today is a friend of the crazy productions that we do. I was uh, graced to speak with him um, in One Heat Minute. We've kind of interacted many times online. He is a film and television producer himself and a writer. He's a freelance editor to pay the bills um, because he's very good at it. And he's also a visual essayist and has worked alongside amazing guests like Mr. Matt Zolazites, um, uh, who've been on this show. And what's really funny, and they even picked it up themselves, is that he and Matt Zolazites have both gotten deep throat scenes, which is hilarious because they've both kind of been around one another and worked together so many times and collaborated that it just seems hilarious that they would just get a scene, of course, of course, by osmosis together. Um, he's my friend, the incredibly talented Stephen Santos. Stephen, thank you so much for being back on a one hit minute production, my friend. <laughs> I love this movie, so I'm glad to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I dropped you in it. 
I've dropped you in one of the biggest scenes of the movie. Um, we're rolling into the finale of this thing. And, you know, what better moment to drop you in than this? You said you love this movie. Tell me and everyone listening why you love it so much. Um, it's, it's, about, it's about doing the work. It's about yes. finding the clues, doing the work. And I, I love I love process movies, and this is about one of the best process movies I've yes. ever seen. Yes. And it just I love I love the slow burn of this movie and how you know he's just finding every little bit piece by piece by piece until we get to that. And this is actually you know this is actually pretty much where the climax of the movie is <laughs> yeah. that we're about to watch soon. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean I've seen I first saw this probably when I was a kid, and like you don't even grasp any. You know, it's hard. No. You, you're just beginning to grasp American history, and this is probably the first thing I ever. This first taught me about Watergate. <laughs> this is the first thing I yeah. knew about Watergate through this movie. Absolutely, you know, I I, I think um, if anyone has got the impression that like I was a history buff before seeing this or anything like that, that's kind of crazy because movies at their best, especially any kind of docudrama, is like a is an entree is like an appetite for something that you'll eventually deep dive on. Like it, whether you really dig the movie or you're just interested in what, you know, how historically accurate it is and, and some things seem rote and boring and you're like, that can't possibly be true. So you have to dig into things and go that that's all very convenient. Um, and in the contemporary age that people will, you know, there's, you know, I think it was like 10 minutes after that Hidden Figures movie that they're like, oh, the Kevin Costner guy breaking down racism as a white savior in that movie wasn't actually real. Shocker. <laughs> um, um, and, but movies like this that really deeply resonate that don't necessarily answer all of the questions but pose a hell of a lot. That still even in illuminating moments like we're about to talk about today um, still require doing the work as you said to actually well, get to that point it's uh, i think you know infinitely rewatchable and, and, and exciting it's it's a fascinating movie because it's a basically they're only adapting the first half of the story yes and they end, and the movie ends and with them fucking up in complete <laughs> failure and then the rest of the story is basically told through that montage at the end of you know the you know when you see the type you know the typewriter at the end and it's now, just it's kind of a really interesting now as a Zelda story now as a writer um uh, you know in, in your next in your next gig where someone gives you a book to adapt just adapt half of it and go look this is where the story is <laughs> I, I i genuinely i mean obviously you know when you're basing something off of history i think that that inclination is not done enough you know really great i think really cool biopics or any any kind of biopic that has a little bit of um is really calculating and targeted on like specific periods of time you know obviously i'm a michael mann fan so i love what he did with ali like it's very focused it's on a couple of big fights, you know, obviously his first fight to win the world title and establish the context of who he is in the world that he lives in. His second fight is against the United States government. And he basically is then essentially sidelined and lots of time passes. And then his third major fight um, um, is obviously George Foreman in the climactic moments of that. So it's like, it's, it's choosing very carefully where to omit things. And the other one that I like that is kind of underrated, but I really like it for its triptych quality is jobs. Like the, the Sorkin Danny Boyle collaboration for Steve jobs right. movie, because it's like, you go, we are choosing these three events and they are going to do enough to convey yeah. this person at different stages of their life. And, you know, there'll be the odd flashback 
for, for context purposes only. Um, but I just love the choices that that happens because so many others end up going, well, here's the pivotal moments. Here's what we're going to do. And, and like, that's why, you know, whatever it's called, Dewey, what's it called? The walk, walk hard. Is it walk hard? The Dewey, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Dewey. <laughs> walk hard. that's why that movie exists is because by this point, the biopic has become so, especially the musician biopic has become so rote and so like reflexive and just completely archetypal that it's like, well, it feels like you could tell the same story over and over and over and over again and basically just swap out whichever musician you want to put in there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm beginning to notice how the, you know, people are really pushing back on those movies now because yeah. I, think, I think when when Bohemian Rhapsody started to really, it was just almost felt like a remake of Walk Hard. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, okay, we're done. We can't keep doing this anymore. <laughs> I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I, I, I would never compare those two only because I think that Dewey Cox and Walk Hard at least had better wigs and makeup than, um, than Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> because they're equally as farcical as one another as far as I'm concerned. But no, I, I, I you know, I think, if you've listened for the, the entirety of the show, or this is your first episode listening, you know, it's definitely something we've talked about along the way is, you know, foundationally from that point of Redford knowing where he wanted to focus the story really largely on these guys and how they began breaking the avalanche and then kind of basically telling the story of them before every single person in the country kind of knew their name. Um, and then they eventually became the sort of lionized figures of journalism that they became. Um, and then Goldman's sort of genius to kind of create this, you know, n- not really typically structured movie, this sort of very organic feeling thing that you start to discover these little hints and tips and they come from all these odd places and the interconnectedness is only apparent as we get to kind of these climactic moments right now in this garage. Mm-hmm. And it's very, yeah, I believe, um, I do believe the story behind this is that in terms of the structure of the movie, that was that was mostly Goldman who structured this movie. Yes, and I believe after that, like Redford and Pakula did lots of heavy rewrites on the dialogue and stuff. And yeah. that's that's basically what you're seeing. But they didn't take credit for it because they were director and producer already, and they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think um, I I have heard from a source which I can't reveal today. Um, and, and I can and it will become more apparent to be revealed uh, as people listen to the climax of the show. Um, so you have your own deep breaths. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, um, that if you have, uh, Alan Pakula really liked to rehearse, you know, he's very Lamette in that way. And he really liked to get the scenes down in rehearsals and also encouraged um, uh, improvisations in the rehearsal spaces if things weren't working and then what would happen is he liked to then take those improvs that were done in rehearsals much like Lumet does and then write them and Coppola did this before and there's many filmmakers who like this as they get the script they get it into a rehearsal space they rehearse the living daylights out of it they might improv and find better ways of doing it in the rehearsal space and then they take that onto the set and then sometimes they can still be um, improvisations on the set, but that's kind of how they like to do it. So take the structure, basically do the script. And if there's anything better they can think of at the time is to sort of update it. Um, but Dustin Hoffman is famous for also pushing the envelope of not 
of, of going improvisationally on the set, which is not necessarily what Pakula liked. It wasn't necessarily his style, but like liked to do that and was an actor kind of famous for doing that in his career. So um, you can kind of see it in those, especially in those scenes he has with Jane Alexander hmm. near the end of the film where they kind of give him the space to kind of, he can't, he keeps kind of, entering her apart you know enters the house and just kind of keeps snooping around and yeah. sort of makes sure like he just kind of refuses to leave yeah like, i don't want to talk to you yes. <laughs> and you can kind of see him kind of thinking up of reasons to try to stay inside the house so that yeah. she'll talk it's it's beautiful like organic on the fly just fluff just to try oh i'll have a coffee yes i'll have a tea yes i'll have a cigarette yes you know it's just yes and i'm staying in the moment i'm going to stay in this scene i'm going to try and not step on your toes in order to offend you to make you sort of turf me out of this room um but yeah it's uh, it's you know i i think I think a great script should have that level of scrutiny. I think a lot of people and just, you know, you would be able to say this as an editor and a writer yourself, like the concept of like an Apatow uh, improvisation where you're doing it on screen in the, you know, and a lot of comedies where you're doing it on the set during the takes and going crazy is kind of like, that's not necessarily the normal way. It's kind of become popularized you know, in, in the sort of post Apatow era that like people would do that on the set, they do a throw out a line reading. I know Taika Waititi talks about like he throws out line readings if it's something's not working and it's a joke that's not working. So they'll, you know, people will sort of throw out line readings from behind this camera. Um, that can absolutely happen in a comedy, but like the improvisation as we have kind of come to know it, especially out of this new Hollywood era was always that directors and writers and actors together in rehearsal times would take this script and then pressure test it so that when they got on set, they didn't need to improv, but they would absolutely improv in the rehearsals to make it better. I mean, in some ways it's very much an accelerated process of what mike lee of mike lee's process yes yes but mike lee doesn't he never actually starts out with any kind of script it's solely months of um working with the actors coming up fleshing out the characters fleshing out the scenes and then the dialogue comes in and then he basically like you know every time they're rehearsing and going through a scene he's kind of creating the screenplay from that yes yeah and and I think in the important thing about it is when people call those movies improvisations is that when they they go through the process so thoroughly that by the time they're on set, at that point they're no longer improv. They're yeah. no longer improv. They're just they've all agreed like this is the scene that we're gonna do. Yeah, and, and I, I think that yeah, exactly that delineation. And Michael obviously is a genius and not making these kinds of movies, but definitely um that that was Pakula and that's a Lumet thing too. Once they're on set, they're no longer rehearsing. During rehearsals, it is about absolutely pressure testing, even if it is re- completely written and then, re- you know, changing things and rewriting things and, you know, uh, taking things out or changing line readings or swapping them over. Those sort of um, things that just make scenes flow better. That's, that's. It's kind of my preferred method also. I kind of like having a mix of, you know, I like to try to write as strong a script as possible and then, but then I want the actors to still surprise me a little bit. Yeah. But, but when we get on set, like, I just want to, we want to fly. Well, yeah. That, that's how you maintain speed. Like that's how those guys made quick movies is because they, they took 20 days or whatever, in, or 14 days at least or something in rehearsal where you just rehearse the living 
daylights out of the script. You do the rewrites based on what works the best. And then you go, this is it. And you get people prepped and then you walk onto the set and then you can have big elaborate set pieces and scenes and crowd scenes and, you know, Attica, you can have those moments sometimes that, that will pop up, but largely the rest of the integrity of what you're trying to shoot is all happen. It's all happened in the rehearsal. So now it's muscle memory and people are coming out and just nailing it. But you're really, I think what you're talking about is something that I think cooler gets so well and in the way that he casts films as well. This is just the brilliance of like when you have a phenomenal cast is you are kind of, you're kind of tailoring text for individuals. You know, there might be certain turns of phrase that a robards could sell that another actor can't sell. And so you might give him a line that feels a bit dreary, but he just delivers it so you know, with such incision that you're like, okay, that's fine. But then other actors are like, no, this, this isn't how I wouldn't say it. I'm at this level of energy. That's a bit too rote. I need to change it a bit, like make it a little bit more organic, whatever the case may be. And, and, and you dress it around it. But I think that that's, that's a great choice. Well, we're about to probably scene, 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 scene. And I'd actually want to really talk about how Holbrook's acting in this, which is, yes. He makes, and I mean, I think, yeah, I think maybe show the scene and then we could just, because I think um, he makes really certain specific choices based on the fact that we can't even see him. <laughs> it's very interesting that what he does in this. And um, yeah, I want to talk, yeah, I want to talk about that and talk about like, I, I really looked at the three, there's three deep throat scenes in here and I want to just, I was really seeing how they progress and how they change, but. Um, yeah, let's, you know, <laughs> I think it's, we need it's, to- what's yeah. funny is people are going to listen and it's happening. It must just be me. It's happening in so many episodes right now where the guest is so aware of how the show works that they're like, Blake, just play the scene. <laughs> okay. And, and, and if I'm being directed by Steven, I'm going to take the direction. I'm going to take it. We're going to watch the scene. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally kidding. All right. Well, guys. I'm, I'm, the guy, I'm the guy who's hoping to be a showrunner. <laughs> so, so, so this guy who's hoping to be a showrunner, he's already like, you know, fake it until you become it. Like that's exactly, this is like, get on with the scene. If I'm show running these series of shows, get on with it, get to the episode. Okay. We're going to do that guys. Um, the great Steven Santos and I, we're going to watch this scene right now. It's the 129th minute is two hours and eight minutes on your dial. If you're watching it, um, should be the same on DVD and Blu-ray and on uh, streaming um, altogether or um, a- any of those streaming options. We're going to watch that minute right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Were we wrong? You'll have to find that out, won't you? Listen, I'm tired of your chicken shit games. I don't want hints. I need to know what you know. It was a Halderman operation. The whole business was run by Halderman, the money, everything. It won't be easy getting at him. He was insulated. You'll have to find out how. Mitchell started doing covert stuff before anyone else. The list is longer than anyone can imagine. It involves the entire U.S. intelligence community. You are so right about choices. Because for a guy who is barely visible, the choices of where to look, when he's thinking, 
swallowing to, you know, getting dry mouth in the moment. Um, even Redford, Woodward, who has been so measured and calculating with the way that he interacts with people. And like in the only other scene that we've seen him even barely raise his voice, it was with Sally Aitken or be forthright where he's like, did, did he tell you that to go to bed with him basically about the yeah. Canuck letter? But my God, it's a magnificent and extremely tense little scene because up until this point, he's really berating Woodward about, you know, the lost opportunity. Like it's a huge fish that may go uncaught. Um, I'd love to hear you talk about it because I, I think it's a divine scene and just, I can't get enough of, and I, and I know that you as an editor can't get enough of this stuff too. It's, a line having space to breathe. Like I'm tired of your chicken shit games and like, I need to know what you know. And then a pause that you could fly a plane through to decide yes. whether something, you know, whether they're going to say it or not, or whether they're just going to turn and walk away. So tense. Um, I mean, first, I mean, and, and I want to talk about these and just, cause I think you have to talk about the other scenes to get to this scene. hundred percent. Um, here's the thing. And, and this is also, as I was, you know, scrolling through the movie and kind of looking at it, preparing for this podcast and looking especially at these three scenes, these three scenes are also very specifically <laughs> colored different than the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. The entire movie is bathed in warm red, orange colors even at night when it's usually some cinematographer, some of the lazier cinematographers just want to like throw on the blue gel and all that. And um, these, every single, every single scene in, that, in this movie is bathed in those colors except these three scenes. And, um, and these scenes to me are like as much in a partnership between Gordon Willis's cinematography and Holbrook's performance, which yes. is, you know, he's, he has to give a performance in which most of his face is just not visible. You're, you're kind of taking away one of the major tools of an actor. Um, and he, he's very aware of what you can see of him. And he uses that. He uses that to enhance his performance. In the first scene, the first, the first deep throat scene, which is about roughly 40 minutes into the movie, um, he's only seen, and I, I, I'm, uh, this is like a beautiful shot. He's only barely, his eyes are the only things that are barely ever seen in that scene. Yes. And he's, and then, and, a, sec and a, a second, a second eye light. Yeah. <laughs> a, a very tactical, almost unseen eye light that are just illuminating the whites of his eyes. So they're gleaming in the darkness. And he's backlit by some, you know, the these blue, these kind of bluish turquoise, greenish mm. lights mm. that are behind him, and you know, in that scene, he's very, you know, he's very hesitant to say anything. He's just mm. kind of, he's kind of even toying with Woodward at that point because he's just not, he doesn't really trust this guy either. Not sure. Yeah, and he's, you know. And it's visually just to see him just work with the, you know, he's, he's working solely with his eyes in that scene. To, and you're not kind of getting, is he really going to kind of help with this? And is he going to, you know, you can't even not sure if this guy's, you know, for all he knows, he's, he's kind of entrapping them for all, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the second scene, which happens about an hour later, 
that's actually the most you ever see of him. The lights are pretty bright on him. You can yeah. kind of see most of his face bathed in blue. Um, the backlights, you know, he, you could see more of the lights of, of the garage behind him. And that's one, that's the scene where he actually starts to become a little bit, he actually expresses his emotions more yeah. clearly. What, 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 what's the topic for today? Rat fucking. <laughs> you know, that, that's that's that scene you know you see him light a cigarette there's the more illumination know, back in my day it was just called the double cross you're getting some more personality out of him you know in that in those moments and he and he full and, and interesting thing he always he also expresses how much he does it, which is funny considering what he's doing he expresses that he doesn't like newspapers and he thinks they're you know he thinks everyone's shallow he thinks that you know he doesn't which is a funny thing to say when you're meeting with a reporter <laughs> <laughs> And you know, and yeah, such, such is the conflict of a guy who's like the second slash third in charge in the FBI to not like newspapers. Actually, it's deeply on brand. I would almost say, like, it's like the most on brand thing he can say is, "I have a conflicting relationship with media," as you may imagine me to have. And this, and this is this that's actually yeah, and this and because of the way the lighting is, and he actually just you know, it's actually the scene where you, you can see you know, you see the most of his face, and he's like. He's putting himself out there more, but then what happens at the end of that scene is when they start hearing these noises, and he's like, "Did you follow? Did, you know, did you switch cabs on the way over?" And it, yeah, and that's when he just disappears, and it's like he stops. You know, that's that's his last time kind of in the light. And that's the most you ever see of him in this entire movie. Yes, and once we once we add that level of like these guys' lives are in danger if they find out this guy's fucking talking. And you know he's he's gone back into the shadows, and that's when we get to the third scene, and and they switch places too because if you yes. notice the way the angles are in the other two scenes, they're almost identical in scenes one and two. Almost identical. The only difference is the light, and uh, Redford's on the left constantly, and and Deep Throat is always on the right. And Deep Throat is always facing the entrance of the garage because he wants to see who's coming in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this one, he they kind of stage it so that he's kind of buried in a corner of the garage, no backlights behind him. He's bathed in blackness, and you only see um, the left side of his face. Yes, during the whole scene, and you know it. And it's like he's. This is like his last moment before he fully disappears into the shadows. Yeah, it's like it's like a it's like a dagger. It's like a scar. It's like just this one little sliver of light on that whole left hand side of his face. Mm -hmm. And this is an important thing between those three scenes. And it's and and there's why there's a certain acting that important acting choice he does in this minute is the first two scenes, and they make a thing out of it because of you know. The way he lights his he smokes in the first two scenes. He and you know even in the in the second scene that's actually how Redford sees him. He turn he flips the light on. He flips the, the lighter on, and that's when Redford knows where he's standing. The third scene is the only scene he doesn't smoke in. Yes. You know why? Because he's look. You know the first two scenes he's looking. He's you know he's where he's positioned. He's looking at the entrance of the garage. He's looking at everybody. He's, you know, he's trying to see if anyone's coming in. And those cigarettes are, although his performance is not saying this because he seems like, you know, stance tough FBI. You know, he's been the he's been in the government for years. 
he's fucking scared. Yeah. The cigarette is the only is the cigarette is the one thing that's that's saying he's scared. This time, when he's when he knows, you know, I think he knew he knew before this scene like he was going to give up Haldeman because he knew that's what he was looking for. And since he's not smoking, when Redford does the chicken shit line, and then we have that as you said, the pause you could fly through. Yeah. He's doing that thing with his lips because he's that cigarette was his crutch. He yes. would normally have been smoking at that point, but you see him kind of getting dry. He's dry mouth. He's like trying to, you know, he's trying to get these words out of his mouth to give up hold of it. And it's like, it's such a good acting choice. Like, you'd so. And, and his eyes for the first time, so much of the previous scenes, Steve, which you're so right, is his eyes are almost unwavering at. Woodward and it's Woodward who's scanning around you know you do it naturally in a conversation like you and I look at each other and then we think of something we might look in the distance and what's that thing I'm thinking and then you look back and and regain that like engagement and attention and he not only does the dry mouth reflex but his eyes break eye contact with Woodward like in the in, in, in the geography of how we know the two shot is staged and he looks down, he's kind of like what would be looking down at like Woodward's chest or like looking off to the side and you see him as he's gulping and swallowing. And it's like, it's so great because there's nothing you can hear in these car parks except that like smacking of his lips as he's trying to like get, get some moisture back in his mouth to respond. He looks at him to go, am I going to do this? And that, because one of his eyes, this is what's so great about Willis. This is why you know that Willis and Bakula, like they just loved working together because they just had such a field day with this sort of stuff. You see his eye track to look away in this moment before he then regains his attention and literally then just becomes this unfiltered and extremity of truth. Like it's like it was Holderman. It's not just that. It's espionage that's happening all over the place. Da, 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 da. obviously it trails into the next scene. It's like, get your notebook basically is his final <laughs> thing. But it's, it's that fact that his eyes move away, the glint of his eye moving, changing position, pursing his lips, then going back and regaining that connection. It's a really phenomenally staged scene. And like you said, I, I also, I, I just want to tag onto something which I think you said was really brilliant before I come back to you is there's a confidence and a swagger to stand in a garage and still light a cigarette. Because it's like, I at least know the tradecraft that no one's following me. I've always thought the lack of cigarette too, beside it being a crutch is he's actually even more scared now than before. So I don't even want to light a cigarette. I'm going to hide in a different spot that I've never been in before. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to light a cigarette to not draw any attention to my, any additional attention to myself because maybe that people are legitimately following these guys now because we do know their lives are in danger. Um, and he hasn't said that yet. He will say that in the next minute. But yeah, it's a, I mean, what a, what an act, like what an actor and what a part. Yeah. I want you to come into this movie and stand in the dark and do your best work ever, Hal Holbrook, please. And play a real guy that you really don't know who you have no idea who he is. You have to have a take. You have to decades before we ever found out who this guy actually was. Yeah. Basically we assume that he's in the intelligence agency. You need to have a complete take on this guy and his internal turmoil and his philosophy and this and go. And like everyone else has gotten to meet the people they're playing. 
And he's the only guy that doesn't get to do that. So go. <laughs> and I, I just want to also just note, like, in, especially in these three scenes, uh, the different, how much I love the cinematography of this, of this movie. Yeah. Um, especially with these scenes and especially how this would have been handled by more by cinematographers today. Cause I think, um, you know, I, I've, I've, I've expressed this many times is that a lot of directors are a little addicted to color grading <laughs> <laughs> and they don't paint I with white I, on I, that. I think maybe you've said it once or twice. <laughs> and, you know, it's very, and, you know, as, as, if I ever get anything off the, any project off the ground, I'm going to embrace skin tone as, a, yeah. as a, an aesthetic again. And in this scene, it's very important, you know, the way it's lit, because most directors would have just bathed the whole thing in blue and turquoise or green, that kind of sickly green, bluish turquoise color. But the thing is, in this scene, it's lit very carefully where Holbrook's face is kind of lit, you know, has much of the, that, you know, color on it, you know, had that bluish, greenish color on it. And, but you see a bit of skin tone. But Redford's character, fully perfect skin tone. Yes. Like, and he's kind of seeing, you know, and it, it's, it's, you can see his, you can see the red in his face when he says, that's what I like. That's how you, yeah. Yeah. You can see when he says that line, when he says the chicken shit line, it's like the blood comes into your face. Cause guess what? He's angry. Yes. And when you yeah. color grade it to death, you don't get to see necessarily how the emotions flush on the face. I think there's something so about, you know, a couple of times in some of the other deep throat scenes, we've talked about how, you know, this is the subterranean world. This is the moments where they get to play in the underground and they get to have all of this sort of like, you know, Hades-esque qualities. That's why you pick turquoise and dark greens and you're playing with that sort of, you know, subterranean feelings. And, you know, if you're playing with that and you're playing with this figure who's shrouded in shadow and he's an underworld slash, uh, you know, maybe he's part of the world, but for the purposes of this, he's underworld. He's the guy who doesn't register the emotions in the same way, even though he, he is a human being and he's that person. But in the moment, they're like, that's as raw as you want it. You want to see the emotion. And so far, that's the other big transition too. Woodward has never really even peaked. He's just listening there. He Please tell me I'm right. And like just spitting out little bits of information of what he thinks he knows just to try and be delicate and to not let, let yeah. deep throat off the hook. And now he's like, I'm tired of your chicken shit games. And the anger is there. And the real person is there. Like this is a moment, one of the moments of the movie for that reason. Well, I mean, it is very much, it's all, yeah, it's all come down to this moment. And it's come down to like wanting, it's, and it's an important moment because, you know, in, you know, I'll, I'll just, I'll just know, you know, because whoever, whenever this podcast is being heard, you know, we're recording this a week after, you know, my country ele elected a new president. <laughs> and, you know, this is very much a scene about, you know, a person who, you know, is loyal to the government and, you know, he's worked in there for years and years and, People are, getting, people are going to hear this about five days after. About five <laughs> days after you say it, people are going to be hearing it. Just so you know. but, prob but probably, you know, um, 
but there was, you know, and he's already been involved in certain things himself, but at a certain point, things went too far and he decided like, that's it. This, I'm not going to stick up for these. I, I, I'm, this crossed the line and yeah, see, and to see that happen with something like this, which, you know, the funny thing about this movie, it feels the, the, the scandal seems quaint compared to what, has Very. happened in America since then because it feels, it feels like you know certain presidents decided to say hold my beer I'm gonna go <laughs> and uh, and it just it it just feels like a it feels like a different time when somebody just like you know stood up for something you know because he just knew like things have gone too far and this can't happen anymore yeah i mean look in the in the james um comey investigation around certain presidents who've now been uh who've now lost the election you know there's exact there was examples of you know people um oh sorry not the comey case it was um, um the Mueller. so during the Mueller investigation i'm sorry just to correct myself um during the Mueller investigation there were people who who came forward and said, yes, President Trump told me to do X, which would have been illegal, and I refused to do it. And there wasn't like one example of this. There was like 10 examples of public servants who were told expressly like a, like a direct order by the President of the United States to do something which they knew was flagrantly like against the law, and they didn't do it. And therefore, it's like, um, it's like, imagine, it's like imagining someone you don't like dying. And then them not actually being killed. Like that's basically like, it was like 10 of those. Like, you know, it's not illegal necessarily to imagine someone uh, that you don't like dying. But, you know, in, in a lot of these occasions, like that was the exact stopper from something illegal happening was someone having the morality to go, this is bad. And also just like this entire litany, this entire culture of the Nixon administration was the way that these guys did it. And I think this is really true. If you have a toxic culture, it is never just the leader of that business that is toxic. Yes, they are absolutely a, a nucleus of toxicity, but it is about how people have turned a blind eye or have enabled them or have apologized for them and all those sorts of things. So you have well, to ultimately the title of the movie. It's it's a the it's not, it's not about Nixon. It's about the enablers that got him there. Yes. And, and, and that is, and that is just something that is like, that, that resonates with me. It's like all these people that are doing it and, and slowly getting through those different layers of shields and diffusers and people who are insulation levels all the way to the people who are actually barking the orders and, and this scene it's a Holderman operation. It's like, oh, it's a Holderman operation. We are here, you know. And who told Holderman to do it? It's a Holderman operation. He's in charge, and it goes all the way. It goes as high as it goes. And yeah, and then you just think about like, wow, this and this this wasn't the worst scandal. Like people are gonna wonder, this is what made our president resign. Then, but then it wasn't the worst scandal in our history at all. When you look at it, <laughs> I mean, this is what I've said, and I've said it facetiously, and I will continue to is there was a guy or gal who, when the grabbing of the pussy thing happened, was like, This is Pussygate. This is my Watergate, right? Like, I'm this is gonna, 
this is going to tear down the Trump campaign. And it emboldened him. And you're like, yeah. there have been, Steve, like, you know, this is a guy who produces things. This is our 129th podcast on this, just this show this yeah. year. We've been doing, you know, three to four a week to a clip to make this show happen the way it's happened. And the reason for accelerating it is because of just how unbelievable the entire year has been in American politics and civil unrest and things like that. And it's like, it almost feels like after this year, this movie becomes irrelevant to talk about for another 20 years until people get to reflect on what happened in 2020. And I have gone and recorded an episode like I'm doing with you today, a few days out from it being published and yeah. the guest and I would be talking about the latest scandal. And I personally like put that in recording and I schedule it after I edit it. And I think, wow, that's going to be, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And then the day that the episode drops, I'm like, there's five other news items that have eclipsed it already. And it like, feels like I'm talking about ancient history. And I'm like, <laughs> wow, that went past. Like that was nothing. It was just a blip. It wasn't, it wasn't the tsunami I thought it was going to be. It was just a tiny wave. Like it was like a three foot little wave. It's fine. And so, yeah, I, it's, this year has been a lesson in no story has been too big. It has literally been the collective weight of hundreds of stories and some really key pivotal stories that have like inspired those who've been so passionate to get out and advocate and vote for, for, for vote Trump out of office and vote in the biggest numbers in the history of the United States. Um, but also equally, there's a whole strange and I'll say it you so you don't have to. There's a whole strange cult that's around yep. the other side, which is like just just make them they're just like make America a monarchy again is basically what they want to say. Like it's it's crazy. It's really weird. Like we didn't have that back. It, it wasn't is I mean there were there were Nixon supporters, but it wasn't a Nixon cult. No. And it's very weird, you know, it's like what what happened to our country since then that we just couldn't that made people follow these, well, meant any words, these fucking idiots. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you just, yeah, I mean, you just, and I, and I actually am very curious about your perspective about this movie, because you're coming, you're, you're approaching this movie, come, you know, obviously from a different country. And, yeah. you know, I wonder when, when did you first see this? Uh, I saw it, I saw it when, I saw it when I was probably just out of high school. I saw it for the first time. And at that time, like Oliver Stone was one of the most, like one of my favorite filmmakers. I think he still is absolutely one of the most fascinating filmmakers in United States history, as far as I'm concerned, just his entire life story and, um, and the movies that he goes on to make and how forthright he makes them and how dynamic and, you know, influential his choices are uh, in the making of those things. Um, and so I saw this and I was fascinated by it. And then it led me down, you know, once you go down the JFK rabbit hole, it's like, okay, well, let's just, let's have, do some reading. And, um, and then I came at it again repeatedly in study. Cause when I was studying at university for the first time, I did like an honors thesis. I was doing a thesis on Michael Mann and part of it was about authorship, just like cinematic authorship and learning about it. And I didn't really, I don't really prescribe to authorship necessarily. Um, as like a, you know, from a purely auteurist angle, I kind of look at it as it's really fascinating to look at different filmmakers, especially from different countries and cohorts that have the same 
philosophical, sociopolitical underpinnings and to chart how they express them throughout their career. And so sometimes you get filmmakers who do that in really concentrated doses because they make lots of movies around the same time. Like if you look at Coppola, he's talking a lot about American society in four movies faster than anyone else because he's making a movie in 72, two movies in 74, and then one in 79. And they occupy surveillance and paranoia thrillers. They occupy like American politics um, to a broad extent and like the mafia and that lovely entanglement. And then obviously the Vietnam War. And so I was really coming at it, writing about those things, thinking about Michael Mann because Michael Mann's a guy who makes movies over such a long period of time that you come to the insider and it feels like it should be a movie that's made next to network and all the president's men more than it should be a movie that's made in 1999, for example. So I was kind of interested in that whole idea of like, Oh, let's have a look at how, and even Terrence Malick is another great example, a guy who's, very much of a time of Mavericks, but he kind of makes movies, you know, his first four movies over four decades. Um, so you don't really get to see he, his philosophical evolution doesn't change much in that time. He's sort of making movies that all feel like they're kind of out of this era. Well, I'm, I'm also just curious how much, and you seem to mention a little bit, um, how much do you look into American history to get what a lot of our films are about? especially some of the key, you know, some of the films you just mentioned. This entire era, it feels like more my wheelhouse. You know, I, I can't say that right. I'm a student of like, you know, much lengthier American history, but particularly Watergate and the era around the, um, and I, and I was doing it from the lens of like expressions of masculinity because there's, I think this time period sort of 68 up to like raging bull is kind of like, let, let's just say like Cassavetes to raging bull. It's like some of the most fascinating portrayals of American masculinity ever on screen or just masculinity just in general in the yeah. English speaking world, because it's like, it's, it's about more sort of naked and candid, like existentialist masculinity you see in European cinema much earlier, like post-World War II, you start to see really great examples of this in European cinema. But um, then what's it, what fascinated me more about this period of history and then the next period of history is is the reclamation of what there's a great author called Susan Jeffords who wrote a book called the remasculinization of America. And she, and she called it like the difference between first blood and first blood part two, where first bloods, (laughs) where first bloods about like a war vet who is like suffering from PTSD and is getting bullied by like a really corrupt shitty police force in town. It feels very contemporary. And first blood part two is a man single-handedly, exacting vengeance on the Vietnam people for making him feel weak. Right. And so that's what the next, the eighties is just that it's remasculinization. Everyone's like chiseled and cut and their physical presences, you know, your Stallones and your, and, and your Schwarzeneggers, that's where they dominate. And so that's, that's what it really, that was, I guess that's the gestation. And so for me, that's why these movies fascinate me. And if I was thinking of like, like one of the texts of like a journalism movie, it's this one. So yeah, I, I, and in the process of this project, like researching lots of different, lots of different Watergate books, lots of the books of, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, lots of different articles, those things to, to get myself familiar with what I need to and bits and pieces about politics. So I understand like what people are actually talking about. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of, uh, that was a huge part of my study is because that's, that's what I feel kind of authorship is. It's like you watching 
people express these political values in their cinema by the choices that they make. Um, and some of them are more pronounced and some of them have really rigid cases to be made and they have a really, you know, fixed philosophy of what that is. And so they make really interesting movies because it's really fixed and others mutate and evolve and are less pronounced, less their voice is a little bit softer in the, in the chorus of the movie that they're making. But yeah, that's kind of how I always viewed it. So this movie in complete contrast with something like heat, which was our first project, this movie is a, is an alchemy of voices. It is a, is Gordon Willis who we're talking about. It is the different actors of this generation who are on the cusp of intergenerational movements, you know, from, you know, forties and fifties and early sixties actors into the new Hollywood seventies and have got to reestablish who they are and where they fit in this new landscape of movies. Plus your Goldman's who's emerging on the scene. Plus, you know, uh, Pakula who's, been in the scene and is now, you know, basically making the holy trinity of paranoia movies in the 1970s, you know? Um, so yeah, I think it's, this is a total alchemy of voices um, and not, not, not almost stronger than Redford himself as the producer of the thing, as a person who shepherded the manuscript and the script and, um, and, and, and a guy who then stars in the movie and becomes so, you know, uh, um, uh, associated with the text, it's yeah, like it that's was probably one of the earliest, probably one of the earliest examples of a star using um, getting a project off the ground like this to produce to um, yes, kind of present his politics from his point of view, which wasn't really you know I'm not really sure. I mean, you have yeah, especially leftist politics, especially during that <laughs> time. I mean. Yeah. Because, you know, there were, I mean, right-wing politics is kind of built into the Hollywood system before then with John yeah. Wayne. Like, it's built into those stories. So this is kind of um, one star who had, you know, was a leftist, and he, you know, he used this opportunity to, to you know, to, to get behind this project. And, he was, and if anything, it was kind of like, um, he was kind of laying the, the, the ground for some of his own movie. Redford's, yeah, I mean, some of Redford's later movies also are very heavily political, but, you know, like Warren Beatty, probably, you know, this is kind yeah. of long, you know, a few years later, Warren Beatty would make a three hour plus epic about a communist. And, yeah. like, and you can't, like, and, and I'm not sure people realize how big a deal it was back then to do that. I mean, yeah. it's more now because it's just more, you know, you know, uh, you know, you could have someone like George Clooney. Just practically every couple of years, he's producing a movie. You know, it's pretty. You know, that's has more of a leftist point of view. And you know, but back then, it wasn't. It wasn't as prevalent. No, I don't think it was. No, because because uh, the status quo was so important, and like because you know, the status quo is inherently conservative, you know, because if it's a consumerist thing to keep buying stuff, it's like, keep the status quo. Let's not, let's not, uh, let's not rock the boat. Like, are you still going to buy a ticket? Are you still going to buy the popcorn? Are you still going to buy the things you're advertising before the movie? You know, so that's kind of got that lens, but there's a whole, there's a whole swathe of that that happens around this time, which is why it's like, it becomes a, it's like one of the most fertile cinematic periods to mine for great, you know, for great films and, and, and really interesting stories about production and those sorts of things. And, and to go back to an idea that you had, and I'll tell you more of a personal background for me of when I discovered this movie. Um, you know, I really didn't discover the seventies movies until the eighties. Cause I yeah. eighties is when I was becoming, you know, I was a kid eventually becoming a teenager by the end of, you know, by 1990. And that's when I started, you know, my brother kind of, 
was the more curious one to actually seek out those movies and then I'd just watch them. I didn't understand some of them, but they were yeah. intriguing to me. But and, and it felt like the 80s, like I was, I had those 80s movies that, I, you know, I probably liked more then than I do now. Yes. Um, but I was also watching these 70s movies and I would say by the time 1990 rolled around, like the 80s movies for the most part didn't resonate with me as much yes. anymore. And it became like, oh, I started to really get obsessed with the 70s, you know, movies of the 70s. And I probably first saw All the Presidents and then maybe like, I, I'd probably have to guess like somewhere in the mid 80s when I was like maybe 10, 11, 12. Yeah. The first time I'm learning, you know, it's the first yeah. time I'm really learning about Watergate, even though, you know, it kind of happened. That was happening around the time I was born. <laughs> yeah. was, um, and, you know, and I, I think it was like, you know, it was that kind of discovery of 70s films. And as kind of, I, I, I really, I look back at it now and I realized that maybe the reason I was looking for those films was because the ones from the 80s, you know, they were fun in the moment but they didn't really resonate with me as much. Yes. I didn't think about them. And then when I saw these movies from the seventies, like, you know, like, you know, I mean, just, he was looking every year that year, like <laughs> 76, 76 had all the presidents of men, network, taxi driver, all in the same year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you watch these, and these, you know, and, like you, I first saw those movies during that time period, and these are like still the same movies I go back to again and again. I hadn't seen this in ten years, but then you, I watch it again for this podcast. I probably seen like parts. You know, you always catch parts of it on TV every night. You watch like a few scenes. And yes, it's the first time in like maybe ten years I've seen it back. You know, front to back, and then every single time you're thinking, you're finding new things with it, and especially with this because you become. You know, you, know, you I'm going to be a lot more politically sophisticated 30 years after the first time I saw it. <laughs> I know more. I understand what I'm watching more. I understand, you know, I understand the things they're talking about more. And, you know, and obviously we're experiencing, you know, you're, you're, if you're politically aware in this country, you're, you're, you're faced, you're faced with level, you know, incidents of corruption every day in government <laughs> every day and you know that's why you know, and and that's why you know that's why you keep going back to this film and it's like this it, it still holds it still holds and you know <laughs> another thing another thing another uh, we talked about we talked about how quaint the scandals seem now because like they seem they're bad they're obviously bad <laughs> not as bad as the shit that's going on now no. But, you know, the real, the real scary thing is watching a movie where journalists have to get six, seven different sources before the story prints. And we are living in a country now where if somebody has a rumor, a reporter will just post it on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 you can follow stuff on Instagram right now that will is just leads of um, gossip that like is just anonymously put there, and you can just go and find it. And if that wants to be your news outlet, you can choose to subscribe to it, and then that's what it is. But it's that's the other thing is imagine the scrutiny. Like so, with these guys with six or seven sources, when you've got to follow up a story, 
There are sometimes White House press secretaries who buckle under a follow-up question. Not like, where are your sources? Oh, mm-hmm. I've got all these bits of paper. What's on the paper? Oh, these are sources. Where did you get them from? Who are they? Where are, the, wh- where are you getting these from? What are the, what are the paper actually say? Oh, you'll see. We've got it on paper. And it's like someone shaking a ream of white paper doesn't mean anything. It's like, you know, they, they cannot handle a follow-up question, you know? And I, I, I think that that's the time right now, you know, a few times on this show, people have called, have called this movie a balm and a salve for like contemporary times. And I, I can completely agree. Cause I'm just like, if people just keep working, you know, those journalists that broke reflectively, what we can say, and I haven't really said this on the show yet, but like reflectively what we can say are some of the biggest stories, which is like Trump's ideas of the military, Trump's ideas of, you know, Trump's, Trump's lack of empathy and, um, and, and really just gross behavior when like um, John Lewis passed away and also even grosser behavior when John McCain passed away. Yes. Like looking at how some of those stories that at the time we all thought was gross and morally reprehensible. And you're like, ah, oh. and you know, then you see Michael Rappaport on Twitter, put it so eloquently, you dumb fuck you, you know, like, you know, like saying, <laughs> you know, the ghost of John McCain came back to haunt Trump and things like that. You're like, yeah, that, that was a reporter who got a, who got a break and verified on multiple sources then published it in a big, you know, a big, you know, expose account of it. And then that they tried to talk themselves out of it and it didn't work. And it's something, it's one of the collective stories that have created a weight of people, whether it created people who didn't support him, whether it inspired um, people who didn't support him to get up and go and vote. um, That's what it was. And and even even though he's not in this minute, I, I really, and and I feel like every time I see this movie and especially this last time, Every Ben Bradley scene is me like pumping my fist in the air. <laughs> this guy's the fucking shit. <laughs> he's I, asking, he's asking for more. He's always asking for more. And you know, and and my God, that that we you're gonna cover this in a, in a few episodes ahead. His last scene, which has mm-hmm. one of the best lines, his his final line about you know the. The only thing at stake is, you know, the First Amendment, right. the free press, the the future of 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 the country. But that doesn't matter. If, if you, you fuck, fuck, fuck up, up again, again. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm get mad. Get mad. <laughs> <laughs> and then the way he says that, he doesn't even. He just has that resigned look, and and then you cut to them, and you're they're fucking frightened. <laughs> that's good. That's yeah. frightened of the most. Is, is this guy gonna get mad at me again? Don't let him down again. Don't let him down again. <laughs> Steve Santos, mate, this has been such a treat to talk to you. Thank you for being oh, a part yeah. of the show. Um, it's uh, Your insights are invaluable. Again, thank you for all your support and love on the previous experience that we've done. And uh, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way to have you come back and talk a bit of deep throat here. It's been, it's been awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. That was a great Steven Santos. If you want to follow him, the best place to do that is Twitter. It's at Steven Santos, um, S-T-E-V-E-N. S-A-N-T-O-S or vimeo.com forward slash Steven Santos. You can see some of the great collaborations he's done with uh, another one of our wonderful guests, Matt Solazites. Thank you guys so much for listening at ATPM pod for this show is where you can find us for me, Blake Howard. It's one Blake minute on Twitter and Instagram. Please share, rate, subscribe, review. If you dig the show, text it to someone. God damn it. We would love that. It helps a lot. 
thank you all for listening. Another couple of great episodes coming. You will be flooded with great content on this show as we roll into our finale with the incredible, incredible bookkeeper, Jane Alexander. We'll catch you very soon on the next episode with my friend, Travis Woods. Until then, subscribe.